It's great to be together. Thank you, you River West. You made, a, you made the right decision to come today to church. Because I know you could have gone to the Church of the Oregon Coast on a day like today, but you made the right choice. How about that worship? How about getting to hear one another's voices? So cool. I want you to know that I enjoyed hearing most of your voices today. And uh, I'm super excited to get in the word. We're in an, uh, a very profound passage today, super deep. So if you have your Bible, pull it out. Luke 7 is where we go. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and the ushers are coming now. You're going to want your own Bible open. And I think that you'll find as we get started here that the theme today is very poignant. It's probably very timely for many of you. And I'm excited to preach this message So this morning, I have a message for you about what to do when your expectations for God don't match up with your reality. You know what I mean by that? Expectations and reality. We can have certain expectations for how something's going to go, and then we discover sometimes that a space begins to open up between what we were expecting and what actually is happening. And isn't it true that sometimes it's actually in that space where we can experience and feel a lot of different kinds of emotions? It can be very disorienting, right? Expectations and reality. It's actually a very popular theme right now in pop culture and, and on the internet and social media. Last night, I went onto the World Wide Web and I typed into my Google search engine expectations versus reality. And I was amazed how much stuff popped up, quotes and countless memes of all kinds, okay, about this theme. Some of them were really silly. Some of them were really profound memes about expectations for the journey of your life. So I found this one about sort of that you have expectation for what your life is going to be like. And then there's reality, you know, and it always involves a fjord that you have to cross, okay, right? And then you keep going and there's expectations about relationships and baking. And I even found one about baldness. People have expectations for entering into a life of baldness, okay? (laughs) Expectation versus reality, right? (laughs) Right? Or you go to the fast food restaurant and you see that picture of the burger and you have expectations and there's a large gap between, look at that, that's disgusting. Please put that away quickly. One of the most retweeted quotes right now on the internet goes like this. I bet you've heard this, bet you heard this. Sound familiar? Expectations are premeditated resentment. Deep. Right? Isn't that interesting? Expectations are premeditated resentment. And that usually, there's a photo usually of, a, of, a, of an adult guy with pizza crusts all over him and he's playing video games or something, right? But think about it. Expectations are premeditated resentment. And it's kind of fun and silly and stuff, but wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what do you do if you started to experience that kind of an emotion in your spiritual life? Now, that's a different thing. We might not use the word resentment, but maybe we would use the word disappointment. What happens if your expectations for 
Your relationship with Jesus are such that as reality sets in, you start to feel disappointment. That could be extremely disorienting, couldn't it? Wow. Or maybe that just that feeling of being let down. So I titled the sermon, What to Do When Jesus Lets You Down. Yeah, right? Did you know that in the Gospel of Luke, someone experienced that? in his relationship with Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. Remember him? John the Baptist, the famous prophet. He shows up a lot in the beginning of Luke, and then his story sort of drops away. But we pick up one more little sort of narrative, one more little glimpse into John the Baptist's life. And why? Because John the Baptist begins to experience a gap between his expectations for who Jesus would be as Messiah and the reality of who Jesus is and how he's operating. And how does John respond to that? Well, let's find out together. John chapter 7 is where we go. Pick up in verse 18. I'll read it aloud. You look along with me on the printed page. Here's what Luke says. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, that's Jesus, saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, that is Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So interesting. When we left Jesus last week, you'll remember Jesus had performed amazing miracles and and his reputation was spreading. If you look at verse 17 in your Bible, it says the word about him spread throughout the whole region, his authority, his power, his teaching, and that report makes it back to John the Baptist. But what's interesting is that John, for some reason, even in in the face of such a glowing report, John begins to experience some confusion. Something's missing. Something's not quite right. And so what does he do? He sends two of his disciples to say, Jesus, are you you the one? Or should we be waiting for someone else? What happens? Verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight And then he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. I love this. Just put your finger. I love, there's always a sense of humor for the gospel writers. Okay. This scene is great. The disciples of John show up and they're like, are you the one? And it just so happens that in that moment, Jesus is healing people of blindness, casting out demons, right? I just see it play down. Hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. Oh, hold on. I'm going to cast out a demon really quick. And he does that. Give me just a minute. I'm healing someone of blindness. What was it again? Oh, yes, the Messiah, yeah. Go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. It's so beautiful. What does Jesus say? Look at this. He says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. 
River West, let me tell you something. This passage is so important for the church. God in his wisdom has preserved this for us because John's questions are a reminder that confusion or disappointment in your relationship with Jesus can happen to anyone. Even a mighty prophet, even someone who's deeply connected to God can discover that he gets to a place in his relationship with Jesus where there begins to open up this gap between expectations and reality. No one is immune. And I think this is so critical because I know that this concept is live right now, right in this room for many of us. Disappointment, hurt, heartache. Here we have John the Baptist experiencing it, feeling it. But when you read it, you're you're puzzled because the report is so positive. Here's Jesus healing and, and raising people from the dead. Why would John be confused? What were his expectations? Well, in order to answer that, we have to go back on a little tour of the Gospel of Luke. So will you put your finger in chapter 7? Turn back with me to chapter 3. I need you to see this in your own Bible. We're going to go back to the beginning of John's ministry. Chapter 3, in verse 15. John came as the forerunner to the Messiah. Here's what happened. Chapter 3, verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, look, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And you hear that, and if you think, man, that sounds kind of intense. (laughs) That sounds like judgment. Precisely, John was prophesying. John was expecting a Messiah who would come, who would be sovereign, holy, righteous judge, who would have the wisdom and the authority to fix everything that was wrong, to bring about justice for the people of Israel. And John was expecting it. John was waiting and wondering, I see all your works of mercy and kindness. It's wonderful. But are you the one who's going to come and eradicate Roman oppression and free us from our bondage? John had expectations. But there's more. Look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now there's a piece of information we need to know. John was in prison when he got this report from the disciples. He's in bondage to a Roman ruler, in chains, oppressed, and he has expectations for a Messiah who will come and bring justice to the nation of Israel. And he had heard what Jesus said about his own ministry. Turn to chapter 4, verse 18. One more little verse. Remember this, we studied this back right before Christmas. Jesus rolls into his hometown. He walks into a synagogue. Someone hands him a scroll. It's, un, it's 
unrolled. He reads from a, pro- a passage in Isaiah chapter 61, and here's what he says, describing his own ministry. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, great, but also he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I bet John paid attention to that phrase, right? Liberty to the captives, that sounds good right about now. And recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I have a feeling that John was going, Jesus, hello, I'm actually in prison. Remember that part about setting captives free? When's that going to happen? And here's the point. Disappointment with God is often extremely personal, right? It's not just hypothetical. It's not just out there. It often gets super close. Disappointment can move into your neighborhood. Disappointment can move into your home. I know a Christian woman, she's married. As a young woman, she sought the Lord with earnestness. She prayed and prayed for a godly husband. She saved herself for marriage. And she waited and she trusted the Lord and she devoted her heart to the Lord. She not only prayed for a godly man, she prayed that she would be a godly wife. And after she got married, it came out that her husband had been hiding a really deep and serious addiction to pornography. And it was ruining and has ruined her marriage and their intimacy. And she's heartbroken. I know a couple, a Christian couple, They longed for children. They prayed. They knew we would be such amazing parents. And they started to try to have kids and they discovered to their deep disappointment that they were infertile. Heartbroken. I know a man, he, in his business, he operated with integrity and generosity. And and one day he discovered that Some of the other people in his firm, some of his partners, some of whom were actually Christians, hung him out to dry and and left him with nothing. And he was devastated, heartbroken. It happens in our world. It's real. This is not hypothetical. This is live. This is real. What do you do? Last week, we studied Jesus was so amazed by the centurion's faith that he healed the man's servant. But what about the centurion 30 miles away whose servant didn't get healed? Jesus walked into a village called Nain and he raised a widow's son from the dead. But what about the widow one village over whose son died who didn't get raised? What do you do then with the that gap that's opened up. Now I've got a gap. I was expecting something and here I am in my reality and it's, it can be painful and disorienting. What did John do? Well, Luke tells us, look again at your Bible. Luke, verse, Luke 7, verse 18. John took two of his disciples and he said, go to Jesus and seek him out. Let me tell you what John did. John leaned into Jesus with an open heart, with inquisitiveness. This is so important. 
Brothers and sisters, can I share with you a little piece of pastoral advice, okay? Which is another way of saying this is the first point in my sermon, okay? (laughs) Please write this down because you're going to need this. Little piece of advice. When disappointment sets in in your spiritual life, because it's not a matter of if, right? It's a matter of when. When disappointment sets in, make sure that it turns you towards Jesus and not away. Turn towards him. With a humble, open heart, with a desire to know, Jesus, why? Why am I experiencing this? This is what John did. And it's not an accident. Luke's recorded this for our benefit. I love the way Philip Yancey wrote it. He wrote a book called Disappointment with God. And the subtitle, Three Questions No One Asks Aloud. It's a great book. But here's here's how Philip Yancey described this. He's talking about the book of Job and all we can learn from Job. I'll put this on the screen so you can see it. He says, one bold message in the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. Throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. He can absorb them all. Now, I want to just say real quick, I'm going to come back later. I have a little caveat about that. I'm I'm mostly okay with that, but with one caveat that I'm going to share later. So in general, if you said, Pastor, do you agree with that sentence? I would say yes, for the most part. God can handle it. He can absorb it. As often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God. They prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than to shut God out. I love that line. Isn't that great? I'd rather limp than not have God. <laughs> the Bible prefigures, in this respect, the Bible prefigures a tenet of modern psychology. You can't really deny your feelings or make them disappear, so you might as well express them. God can deal with every human response, save one. He cannot abide the response I fall back on instinctively and attempt to ignore him or treat him as though he does not exist. That response never once occurred to Job. And it didn't occur to John either. What did John do? He turned towards Jesus. He sent disciples. He came with humility. He said, Jesus, I I had expectations. I had this job description that I was working with, right? Many of us, we have sort of a job description for Jesus and it might not always be even overt, but we have one. I thought you were gonna do this and this and this in my life. But I'm I'm willing to admit that maybe the things on that job description I didn't get from you or from your word. And so I'm bringing it to you with humility to say, why am I experiencing this disappointment, Jesus? And what I love is that Jesus dealt with him with gentleness and humility and said, John, look, look what's happening. The acts of mercy, River West. Are you disappointed? Have you felt heartache? Make sure that you turn towards Jesus with that. Well, John has more to say. There's more wisdom to be had. So will you go back to Luke 7 with me? Let's read a few more verses here. We left off at verse 23. Here's what happens next. When John's messengers had gone, 
Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. This is interesting. John's messengers go away and Jesus takes an opportunity to talk to the crowds about John and commentators almost unanimously agree that what's happening here is that Jesus was aware that the crowds who had seen this go down might have thought to, might have started to think, maybe John's not that great of a prophet, actually. He's kind of doubting Jesus, right? And so Jesus immediately starts speaking highly of him as if to say, no, 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 John is a true prophet. John is a true prophet. Here's what he says. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Reeds were really common in the wilderness. It was like really the only thing that would grow out there. They did not have 200-foot dug furs out there, all right? So Jesus is like, you didn't go out there for the scenery, all right? So what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Not exactly. Behold, Those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So you didn't go out to see the scenery. You didn't go out for a fashion show. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Whoa. Underline that sentence. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Underline that. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So profound. Jesus says, what did you go out to see? You went out to see a prophet. Yes, and let me tell you something. There has been no greater prophet than John. Among people born of women, there's no one greater. And yet, and then if you look at verse 28 in your Bible, the question is, why does John do what he, Jesus do what he does next? This is like the punchline of the whole section. Why say this? Why say, John's amazing, yes, but let me tell you something. That person who is the least in my kingdom is greater than John. You think, what's Jesus talking about here? Is he comparing individuals and their traits? Is he saying John was amazing? He was a great prayer. He had great fashion sense. But you, let me tell you something, you are amazing. You're such a great prayer. No, that's not what he's saying at all. This is a statement about the unspeakable privilege of getting to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. River West, let me say that again. This is a statement about the unspeakable privilege of getting to be a part of God's kingdom. We take it for granted, don't we? Jesus is saying, you can understand the world in terms of two eras. There is the era before my ministry, my death, burial, and resurrection, and there is an era after it. And you, if you're a part of the kingdom, get to be a part of the era on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. But John did not get to be a part of that. John did not see the resurrection. He was beheaded by Herod before Christ was crucified. Did you know that? 
Jesus says, John was amazing. He was a prophet, but John did not get to live to see the things that you get to see. Do you realize how blessed and privileged you are to be a part of this era, this kingdom? Amazing, amazing. I love the way Jesus said it. You remember when Jesus sent out the 72 disciples in pairs and they did ministry and then they came back in Luke 10, he turned to them. I'll put this on the screen so you can just see it. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, including John the Baptist. Many of them desired to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Amazing. Peter said the same thing in his first letter, chapter one, verse 10. He said, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Isn't that amazing? Peter is saying, Jesus is saying, angels and prophets would have dreamed to be on this side of the cross and the resurrection. So important. I had a mentor who used to say to me, Adam, have you ever thought about this? The same God that Abraham prayed to, the same God that Moses sought and communed with, the very same God that Esther followed, the same God that David worshiped, the same God that John the Baptist served, that is the very God that you get to know and seek in prayer. Isn't that cool? And Jesus Christ would say, that's true, but I'll even take it one step further. Did you know that all those people, Esther, David, Abraham, Moses, John the Baptist, they would have killed to be sitting where you and I are sitting, enjoying the benefits of the gospel of grace. Amen? Amen? This is so important. What does it have to do with disappointment? Can I give you another piece of advice? which is just code for this is the second point in my sermon. <laughs> Write this down because you're going to need this. When disappointment hits in your relationship with God, because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, when disappointment hits, make sure that you take a full inventory of your blessings in Christ. Take a full inventory pause because disappointment can be strong. It's the kind of emotion that can rattle you, cause you to lose perspective. Jesus would say, yes, it hurts. I know. And when it hurts and when you feel it in wisdom, pause and take a full inventory of all that you have in Christ. It's breathtaking. You know, sometimes a little perspective goes a long way. Isn't that true? We just need a little bit of perspective. I just need the wisdom to see things from a higher level. It reminds me of a sort of a silly story that I heard once, kind of a joke about three 
men who were hiking in a wilderness and they came upon a large, raging, violent river. And they had to get to the other side. And so the first man prayed, God, please give me the strength to cross the river. And poof, God gave him big arms and strong legs. And he was able to swim across in about two hours, having only almost drowned twice. Amazing. So after witnessing that, the second man prayed, God, please give me not just strength, but the tools to cross the river. And poof, God gave him a rowboat, strong arms, and strong legs. And he was able to row across in about an hour without, and he only almost capsized once. There we go. Well, seeing what happened to the first two men, the third man prayed, God, please give me the strength and the tools and the wisdom to cross. And poof, he was turned into a woman and she grabbed a map and she saw that a hundred yards away, there was a bridge over the river and she walked over. Yeah. Thank you. I had really high expectations for that joke and you helped me meet my expectations. Sometimes a little perspective goes a long way. And also a little bit of wisdom. Also a little bit of wisdom. So how about you? Where do you go? Where would you go in God's word to get some perspective about how blessed you are? I go to Ephesians 1. Can I read it to you? Don't turn there. Just let this soak your heart for a minute. Because I know some of you, you're hurting. You're disappointed. Here's where I go. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. How many of the spiritual blessings has God blessed us with in Christ? How many? Every single one of them. He's not withheld one. Every spiritual blessing. And also, Paul would say, make sure that you don't confuse spiritual blessings with earthly blessings. Because they're not always the same. And sometimes we make the mistake of hyper-focusing and elevating temporary fleeting earthly blessings, and we radically underestimate and ignore and pass over eternal, beautiful, never-ending spiritual blessings. Paul says, you've been blessed with all of them. So when disappointment sets in, pause and take a full inventory. And what are they? He goes on. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. That's what we are, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption, members of his family, sons and daughters. Jesus Christ is our brother according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. I could keep reading. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed with the Spirit. You have permanent access to God. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been raised from dead to life. You will, 
Your salvation will never be taken away. It is eternally secured by the seal of the Holy Spirit. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen? Amen. And when disappointment sets in, you can go there. It won't mean the disappointment goes away, but it's a really beautiful, wise bit of perspective. It'll do your heart good. Do your heart good. But we have one more bit of wisdom to read. So we look with me finally, a last little paragraph in Luke. And I will, um, I'll give you a little heads up. This is going to get intense. You say, hasn't it already been kind of intense? <laughs> no. Th- so what happens next is that Jesus, and I think rightly so, because he's Jesus, he offers a little warning too. And here's what he says. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. But then the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It's so interesting, Jesus draws on the world of child's play, children's games. And the the illustration, the metaphor that he's painting, it's not very pretty because Jesus says, what is this unbelieving generation that it's represented by the Pharisees? What are they like? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what they're like. They're like children. And the game that they're playing, it was common for kids to imitate adults. So they watched adults do big wedding ceremonies. And so they would play the wedding game where they would sing and dance and play the flute. But then they would say, why why aren't you dancing? And then they would play the funeral game where they would sing a dirge and become really morose. And they would say, why are you not mourning? And then Jesus says, people are like that too. You know, my servant, John the Baptist, He showed up and he lived an aesthetic lifestyle. He denied himself wine and bread and fancy foods and fancy clothing. He ate grasshoppers. He wandered in the wilderness. And how did you perceive that? He said, oh, he must have a demon. But then the son of man shows up and he is the life of the party. And he eats and drinks and he goes to celebrations and he has lunch with people. It's part of his strategy. Lunch beautiful strategy for evangelism, right? I have a friend who says, I'm like Jesus. My spiritual gift is lunch and I use it all the time, right? And that was Jesus, okay? And how did people respond to that? They said, glutton, drunkard, reckless sinner. And Jesus says, I can't win. (laughs) Here's what's happening. I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying, When a person is predisposed that they want to reject God, they'll always be able to find evidence to justify their unbelief. When they want to, they say, oh, I really do not want to serve God. You will always be able to find evidence to justify that. And do you know what? 
the juiciest piece of evidence you can find? Disappointment. A gap that opens up between your expectations and your reality. And Jesus says, just be careful, be careful. So can I share one last piece of wisdom? Please write this down. When disappointment hits, beware the trap of a stubborn, unbelieving heart. Just be careful. Now, many of you, this is not for you. I get it. But this is, a, this, is, this is the heart of Jesus for us. Just be careful. Jesus says, look at, I can handle disappointment. I can handle heartbreak. I can even handle frustration that brews into something that looks like anger. But there is a difference between coming to me with a humble heart saying, I'm really hurting Jesus. That's different than a stubborn, sinful venting of all of your anger towards God. Those are two different things. And Jesus says, just be wise and be careful. In fact, he ends with wisdom. Did you see that? We look now, this will lead us into communion. Verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is so powerful. He's saying there's two ways you could go here. I want you to go the way of wisdom. And here's the thing. Wisdom has children. You and I are those children. The children of wisdom are people who were not blind to a broken world. We know. We live in this world. It's brutal. Our hearts break. Stuff goes wrong. We know. But that but in wisdom, we also acknowledge, God, you are real and you're at work in this world and you're coming back, Jesus. And when you do, you'll make all this right. Wisdom says, I'm living in, an, in between ages, between Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom and his consummation of the kingdom. And for a while, I'm gonna live in this space where there's still broken hearts and skinned knees and broken relationships and people who will stab you in the back. That is a reality of a broken world. It's exactly why Jesus had to come and die. And wisdom says, I also recognize that I serve a savior who was willing to enter our disappointment. Jesus felt disappointment. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. And he entered into the very heart of disappointment for our sins. So important. We'll celebrate it this morning when we go to the table. You realize... As you hold that piece of bread, that bread is not just something that's detached to some ethereal idea. That bread represents Jesus of Nazareth, a human being who was tortured and humiliated. Blood spilled from his brow to save us from sin. That cup is not just a remote detached symbol, that cup represents the actual blood of Jesus Christ that spilled to take away my sins. 
Jesus entered our disappointment. He knows, and you can trust him. And I hope you will this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me as we get ready to go to the table. Lord, we recognize that we need to hear these truths today, not because they're easy to hear or fun to hear. Sometimes truth is not easy and not fun, but your word is true. And we can see the wisdom, God, that you inspired Luke to record this story the way he has. And so we sit in it today with honesty, but also with hope, knowing the very heart of our Christian faith is about a God who would come to deal with disappointment. And so we say, thank you, Lord. We love you. I pray, Father, for those who are here today and their hearts are breaking. I know it's real, Lord. The tears are real, the gut level, whole in your stomach. It's so real. I, I pray for my friends who are in that place, Jesus, that you would meet them today as we worship. Love them, carry them, comfort them, give them wisdom, I pray. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray it. Everyone said, amen, amen.